I appreciate uh, Lee remembering to tell you about the squirrely looking code, and uh, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a hint, too. If you don't have the, uh, now you don't get this anywhere else. You're only going to get this on a Sunday evening. If you don't have a scanner that can read that squirrely QR code, I'm going to give you a hint. Go to the West Ark Church of Christ YouTube channel. Yeah, we've got our own YouTube channel, and you'll see the videos there. Now, I don't know if that's out of order or if you're supposed to do it a certain way. I mean, they're, they're trying to make you aware of this week by week, and there's always a lot of good stuff that you'll come up with here. But um, in case you miss one, uh, you know, you can always go back and watch them a few times. And they're not all there yet, but that's going to be our secret for Sunday night, so... We're going we're gonna to keep that one. Uh, tonight I want to continue with the uh, study on um, the 12 steps and uh, what's biblical about them. And so let me offer you another invitation. Um, we, um, we're almost to the point, well, come January of 2019, we'll have had a uh, Celebrate Recovery program here for one year. And it's making the difference. Marriages are being saved. Um, People are being, being healed of the emotional wounds that they've uh, gone through. People are uh, uh, getting to know the Lord more than they've ever known. They're becoming believers. Uh, there's a lot of good that's happening. And um, just this week, there was another group that started a uh, Celebrate Recovery and another group that celebrated another year. So it, it was good to see these other uh, believers seeking after uh, the Lord's uh, blessings and and it's 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 been interesting for me because I get to interact with others who want to uh, understand more about God's word and that's what's driven me to do this study because I believe that anything that's going to call us back to that and and get people interested in it uh, is going to be good and of course that 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 put me that put some pressure on me to know something about this and what's being said and what's being done here so if this helps you then uh, more the better. And, and let me say this about Celebrate Recovery. Um, it may be something that you want to experience and try out, or it may be something that you have a friend or family member that this might make a difference. And uh, God can use all sorts of means to uh, work his will and his healing power and his spirit and salvation in the lives of others. So take advantage, as Paul says in Colossians, make the most of every opportunity okay so here we are and uh with these 12 steps and we are at step eight step eight in the traditional 12 step program says we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all the steps follow a logical pattern and they're they they come in uh sets of three or four and they have to do with accepting the fact that we need God, accepting the fact that we uh, are, are dealing with unmanageable situations. You can you know, put all of it in a bucket called sin or pain or hurt or whatever it is. And then you can put God's work into a uh, broad category called salvation. And then there's a process that has to do with ad admission and confession and forgiveness. And now with step eight, we get into the, the, the work, the actual, the action that follows this up. It's very much in the spirit of James when uh, he says, uh, if you 
Uh, if you believe, then show me your faith by your works. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is what the 12 steps run that whole cycle of accepting this, uh, admitting this, to acting on it. And uh, this is what I think from a, a popular view, I even uh, held this, that this is where people feel like it starts to get scary. Uh, because this is the part where you have to actually go around and, and fix things with people. You have to, you have to uh, um, mend fences and uh, build back bridges and trust. That's not exactly the case. This is just the process of us taking responsibility for the things that we do. We're learning, you know, all of us have to learn, and whether you're going through a 12-step program or not, you can't fix other people. We should all know that by now. You can't make other people do what you want. You have to be responsible for yourself. We should have learned that in kindergarten, that, uh, you know, when uh, the teacher says, you know, you keep your hands to yourself. That means you're responsible for what you do, and um, others have to be responsible for what they do. But uh, sometimes, even as adults, we, we forget that. And if we don't forget that, we live in a culture that forgets that. And so we think that if we can solve everybody else, then we'll be just fine. And that is surely a path to heartache and depression more than anything else. So in step eight, we make a list. Now, the verse that's attached to this in the Celebrate Recovery program is, do to others as you would have them do to you. That's Luke 6.31. Now, that seems rather familiar, doesn't it? You've heard this one before. Maybe as a child you learned this. This is what we call the golden rule. And it comes in a few different formulas, but it's, it's more or less you treat other people or you do to other people what you would have them do to you. Um, now, now, people have a lot of fun with this. This is so familiar. Do unto others before they do unto you. Or do unto others as they have done unto you. Um, you know, if, 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 um, if you get hit, you're going to hit back. Uh, and and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to get into politics, and this is not a comment on President Trump or anything else, but politics in general has this idea of we will, you know, we will respond, or counterpunch is the way Trump puts it, but we will respond in the measure in which we've been treated. So in other words, it's up to you to determine how tough I'm going to get on you, and it's up to you to determine how much I'm going to hit back. That is very different than the teaching of Christ that says, wait a second, we take the initiative to do good. Before others act, we have determined that the way it would be good to treat others, or the way that I would like to experience the love and the care and the concern and the courtesy of others is this and so that's how I'm going to behave and I'm going to expect nothing in return now that principle is not exclusive to Christ I believe that Christ puts this in the context of his sermon on the mount and does something with it that I do I believe is unique to the way Christ presents this and we're going to look at that in just a second but the golden rule is due to others, not as they have done to us, but as we would have them do. Centuries later, there's a uh, philosopher, a uh, fellow by the name of Immanuel Kant. And what he says is, uh, he calls this the categorical imperative. 
In other words, you should do that, whatever that is, that if everybody did it, it would be good. So you should pick up your trash, you should pick up your litter, because if everybody would do that, we'd have a cleaner world. And you might argue with uh, the philosopher and say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I may be doing it, but not everybody else is. That's not the point. The point is, if it is categorically good, then that's what you should do. That's similar to the golden rule. Except the golden rule goes a step further and, and actually encourages us to take the initiative and the definition of the good is not internal to us. God defines it. He defines what good is. So Christ had not just say, hey, you figure out how you want others to treat you, and then you do that. Well, that could lead any of us into any sorts of narcissistic, self-centered uh, stuff. We could say, you know what, I think I'd be happier if the whole world just left me alone, and uh, I, I, you know, I just... I don't want anything good, and I don't care, you know, and if I want to use other people, I wouldn't have any problem with anybody using me in some way. All right, so then you could argue, well, see, that's the golden rule, isn't it? I mean, I'm treating others the way I want to be treated. Yeah, you're treating others the way you want to be treated, but we're more after that categorical good. What does that look like? Jesus says that it looks like love, and he defines love in the Sermon on the Mount in a very particular way. Uh, Matthew 7, 12 is where you're going to find this in the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew's version of this sermon uh, is much more familiar to us. It's the one that we truly call the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke 6, and I think it's interesting that they chose Luke 6 rather than Matthew 7, 12. I really, I really don't know why for sure. But... Um, the, uh, the sermon in, in Luke's recording of it looks a little different. Now, let me, let me address the idea that, uh, well, wait a second, does that mean that, you know, let's address the, the critic's response that, see, see, this is all made up because Matthew tells it one way and Luke tells it another way. Anybody who's a priest preaching, Levi, you ever preached the sermon, same sermon more than once? Sure you have, I have. Oh, I, I recycle sermons all the time, you know. And uh, because the, the material is basically the same, but every time you preach it, it comes out a little different because of context and where you're at. It's, it's very reasonable and likely that this sermon is one that Jesus preached often. I mean, why wouldn't he? They don't have a recording mechanism other than writing. So wherever he would go teaching, he would teach this. And it might vary up from time to time. Now, Luke also uh, takes the sermon and puts it in the context of his gospel to make a larger point as well. And let's take a look at Luke chapter 6, and I think the inner the opening is very interesting. Here, it, you know, it, it's not necessarily on the mount, but it's on the level place. Uh, I'm looking at Luke 6 verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They'd all come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Because of the level place, that's why this is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, 
verse 20, then he looked up at his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that's what their ancestors did to the prophets. Now, if this is the Beatitudes, you may notice if you compare it to the list in Matthew that some are missing. But um, the recipients of the blessings are those who are poor, those who are hungry now, those who weep now, and those who are hated and defamed now. These are the, the, the unfortunate, the, the, the oppressed. And all through Luke's gospel, from the beginning, you look at Mary's song, it has been all about how God remembers those that the world has forgotten. And so it makes sense that this is going to be the theme. And then what follows after the blessings are woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. <laughs> okay, now this could get rather scary at this point, because we might thinking, wait a second. I'm rich by worldly standards. Uh, I'm definitely, I may be hungry, but I'm definitely full. And uh, I'm laughing now. Does this mean that it's a sin to uh, have money to eat a meal and to laugh? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if it is our objective, if, if, if our idea of having God's favor is based on us having those things, then we're going to find that that's not going to stick with us. One of the best ways to look at this list is to remember the parable in Luke that he tells of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that parable, anyone hearing that in Jesus' world would have looked at the characters that he sat before them. Here's the rich man. And uh, he, he did well, and he was well fed, and he, he always had enough food to eat, and he had a nice place to live. And here's poor Lazarus, who's afflicted with leprosy and the dogs are his only companions and it's just a pitiful scene anyone hearing that would have said the rich man is blessed of God and Lazarus is paying the consequences for sin but the next step in the parable is that when we go to the other side we see that that's turned around that righteousness is not reflected in the blessings that we receive because they, in, in Jesus' world, many people had made a connection between, okay, if something wrong is happening to me, then, then something, I must be sinning. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't pay the price for bad choices that we make. Um, we can pursue riches and suffer for it. Uh, we can pursue all the food we want and suffer for it. We can entertain ourselves and we can seek after laughter and frivolity and never find the real satisfaction that comes from knowing God. So Jesus is contrasting these two things and saying that God, God's kingdom, his way of doing things, his rule, is saying that it, you know, just because you're poor, hungry, hated, or mourning does not mean that you have been forgotten or abandoned by God. 
so when we think that those things somehow symbolize God's disfavor, think again, says Jesus. And, and if you pursue these things that, and again, we, we wipe, you know, he, he makes it plain. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are hungry or filled. Woe to you who, are, uh, who laugh now. And woe to you who are praised by everyone. We have ways of making that sound a little different, and we encourage people, you know what? Follow your ambition. Follow your dreams. Find satisfaction. And it's all very self-centered, and yet we make it sound good. And we drape it in the American dream, or we drape it in um, independence and, and self-satisfaction. And, and the problem is, those things can become false gods. God can give us those things. He can provide. But when we pursue those things, that, that, that dream may be a false god. A good book to read on that, if you ever want to uh, go further with that idea, is um, uh, David Platt's book that... Um, Anybody recall his, his book that he came out with? It was all about the American dream. Radical, his first book. Yeah, Radical. It's called Radical. And he talks about how sometimes, and, uh, you know, we've been, we've been sold this idea that actually pulls us away from God. We think that God's behind all of it, but it pulls us away, and it says, wait a second, maybe we better get our priorities straight. And, and Jesus in this sermon is calling us to that. And here are the things he will say in a nutshell in the sermon. He'll start off by saying, love your enemies. Now, we hear that, and that doesn't strike us as very radical, because we're used to hearing that. We, you know, it sounds rather Bible-ish to us, love your enemies, and Jesus says things like that. We hear it, we believe it, we know it's true. Practicing it is hard, we'll admit that. But we really need to hear this as a radical word, that when Jesus says that, he is pushing his disciples, he is calling his disciples to do things very differently. Don't judge, don't condemn, instead forgive. Again, that's calling upon us to do something very radical by the world standards. And then you must practice what he preaches. Here's where faith and works come together in the teaching of Jesus, that to do that is with pure and simple wisdom. And he gives us a lot of parables along the way. The, the sermon in Luke is, is rather simple. So we're going to focus in on the first part of it, which is where our verse comes from. We don't have time to go through all the rest of it, but the first part has to do with love. So I want to start reading in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. He says, I say to you, but, but I say to you that are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. He's given us four instructions right there at the start. Love, do good, bless, and pray. Do good, in fact, or love your enemies. Not, that's counterintuitive. You don't love the people who are out to get you. You, you have to generate enough animosity towards them that if they're your enemy, that you win the battle. But he says love them. Uh, do good. Now, now, and again, that, that might be the kind of thing where that's, that's rather easy for us to do, and it helps us when, when our enemies are uh, people that don't threaten us. I remember, you know, 
it would be like, um, you know, me saying that, hey, you know, there's, there's, there's some crank out there that thinks you're the devil, Benjamin, you know, and he's in right and left. Who is he? I don't know. Nobody knows. Oh, well, okay, I'm going to love my enemies, so on, and move on. Um, in my school, we'd have fights all the time and all that, and of course, if you were you were in high school and some elementary kid came up and wanted to fight with you, 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 you didn't, you know, it was like, yeah, yeah, okay, kid, sure, you know, you knew better than that. It was like, they didn't threaten you. But if the bigger guy was coming after you, if the person, that, okay, now, now it's hard to love that person. Now you want to get to them before they get to you because they actually threaten you. Jesus is talking to people who are threatened by enemies, who are dealing with enemies who can really do them harm. And he is saying, you should love them. Do good to those who hate you. And again, this isn't a benign hate that someone's just, um, you know, that, that, that we're nursing a grudge. This is someone who hates us enough to uh, do something against us. And then he has the interesting, bless those who curse you. Okay, this isn't just people who yell at you when you cut them off in traffic. Around the time of Jesus, we've got um, uh, archaeology and there are writings that talk about this. There was the idea that the words that you use can do someone harm or they can do someone good and they have an effect, not just a psychological effect, but a spiritual effect. So we, we, one of the interesting things they find in archaeology is that the Romans believed that you could write out a curse on someone. You know, all these bad, horrible things that would happen to them. And, and one of the ways they would do that is you would write it out on a piece of tin. You know, I guess metal is just really good for curses, you know. You scribe it out on this tin and everything, and you wrap it around a nail. And then you go take that nail and you drive it into the wall of their house. Now that curse is embedded in their house. You know, archaeologists find these things. They open them up, you know, and they read them. And, oh, these curses are horrible. It's like, by all the powers of the gods, you know, may their chickens give, uh, you know, rubber eggs and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Just nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. You know, horrible things happening to them, you know. It's like, you know, and, and you, you know, you yuck, and it's just, it's just filthy. So, but people really got into that, and they thought, yeah, that's a good way. We'll get back our enemies. Maybe we have a little more sophisticated ways of doing that now. Slander, libel, gossip, telling things, you know, we, don't, we may not scribe it out on metal and put it in nails. Jesus is saying that those who curse you, you're not just going to ignore it, which is what most of us say. Oh, ignore them when they say something. You know, bless them. You speak well of them. And then you pray for those who hurt you. The thing is, is when we're hurt, that's not just, again, we got to take this away from just the benign, you know, like, well, that hurt my feelings, but I'm going to pray for that person. Some people have been seriously hurt in such a way that um, it, they, they react to the people who have hurt them. And Jesus is calling us to prayer. Now, here's the thing. He never says it's going to be easy. And one of the things that we practice in the church and that we need to practice with one another is that the process of doing these things may take an entire lifetime. And so when somebody confesses to being hurt, w w our job is not just to say, yeah, yeah, you were hurt. I'll tell you what, you need to pray for that person, and then let's get over it, and let's move on. No. 
we're moving through it. And it may be years of hurt. If you've been through years of hurt, it may take years of recovery. Jesus calls us to do this, but he doesn't say it's necessarily going to be easy. Now, he gives us some actual examples of what these look like. So we continue reading. He says in verse 29, If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, don't even withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, don't ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And there's our verse. I don't like the way New RSV has translated verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you. That kind of puts us in this funny position that we think that, you know, whenever we see the guy on the street corner and he's got the cardboard sign, that it's like, uh, he caught me. Uh, I got to give him 10 bucks now because Jesus said I got to give to anyone who asks. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's being instructed at all. Um, because if you do that, that's not love. That's just some sort of spiritual obligation like, oh, you caught me. Okay. That's like, that's like you're going through some uh, college club. Uh, I, I didn't do fraternities and sororities when I was in college, but I, I've talked to people who did. Even at the Christian colleges, you know, you don't, you have those little clubs and it's like, you know, anytime an upperclassman says this to you, you've got to do, you know, 50 push-ups or something like that, or you have to do a jumping jack and turn around or some kind of weird, silly pledge stuff, you know. That's the way we treat this, you know. Hey, if I ask you for a dollar, you got to give it to me. Oh, okay, you know, I really don't love you, but here you go. Anybody who begs from me, I have to give it to him because Jesus said so. We can do better than that. And furthermore, that's, that, what's being said here is these would be rules that the people would be so familiar with that the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who were in favor of God's favor equals me doing well in this world. We're so used to putting limitations on all of this that uh, if anyone strikes you on one cheek, off of the other. They would have been more familiar with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, if anyone takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Okay, now that would have been from the side of the person who is not, uh, who, who is poor and hungry and hated you see, if, you, um, if somebody owed you money, and usually that, those rules favored the rich, you could go and you could take that person's coat away from them, their cloak. And the rabbi said, okay, you can do that because they owe you money and you need some collateral, but hey, don't keep it overnight because they need that to stay warm. Okay, Jesus is going two steps further. First, he goes further implying if you're going to have a rule about not taking the person's coat and it's that bad, why are you taking their coat in the first place? But then he goes another step and he informs the person who's losing the coat. He says, tell you what, you just give them the shirt off your back. God's going to provide for you. And not only does that instruct that person how to live, it, it, it shames those who would think that there's some sort of way to, uh, and again, remember, he's addressed Blessings on those who think that God's forgotten them and woes on those who think that they're blessed. It's, it's two steps ahead, not a step further, but it's two steps ahead because he's actually talking to the oppressed people and he's saying, there is a way I want you to behave that's the kingdom way. And that's why he gets to the next one, give to anyone who takes from you. This is not given as an instruction to just the rich person who has a lot and needs to learn to share, 
This is an instruction given to the person who may not have much at all. And they were often, and that still it happens in today's world, that people like that are vulnerable to those who can take advantage of them. And Jesus says, don't resist them. Don't resist them. He's saying, don't define yourself in terms of the stuff that you have or the stuff that you want or the stuff that you don't have. You just, you, and and we're, we're familiar with the term, the second mile. It doesn't show up here. But somebody could force you to go uh, uh, a mile. He says, you just go ahead and, and just give them two. Why? Out of the kindness of your heart, because it's the right thing to do. Uh, Jesus is calling us to a higher standard than the minimum requirement. You know, sometimes this will make a lot of sense to us also if we read this, not in terms of being the ones in power, but the ones who are without power. And I think when you read it that way, you hear Jesus saying, you know, maybe you should renounce your quest for power. Sometimes we get very anxious about, you know, it's not us personally. We would never claim that personally. But sometimes we say, hey, we as a people, we need to retain all of the, the, the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities. And, you know, we, we've done enough of that for so long now that it really hasn't gained us a whole lot. And it's caused a lot of people to get the wrong idea. Maybe we should just say, you know what, God's got this. God's got this, and we don't have to fight for our rights because he's given us all the rights we ever need. I don't have to fight for them. And, and if some government thinks they're going to take that away from me, I'm not going to be happy about that. And I'm going to hate it and everything. But Jesus is saying that I've got an eternal kingdom where I'm not going to have to fight for my rights or vote for the right person, where he's going to be the king and I'm going to be happy. I'll live for that. I'll live for that now. Um, so he says don't demand damages when you're cheated, when you're robbed, when they, when they, they sneak you. And, you know, and they, now, you know, I, I'm... At the same time, I'm not saying that you should just give up on it. I mean, if you, you know, if you have the opportunity to set things right and do the right thing, you know, absolutely do it. But he's saying this does not need to become the kind of animosity that causes us to fight for that. Then he goes into the next, uh, this, this really explains it. You have to keep seeing what he's doing, okay? He's calling us to a higher standard. These are examples. Those examples of the uh, turning the other cheek, giving the shirt off your back, uh, don't demand uh, damages when you've been cheated or robbed. Those are not specific instructions and you just leave it there. They are examples of what he's talking about. Does it apply to real situations? Yes, absolutely. Does it apply to situations beyond what he's talking about? Of course. And if you keep listening to his teaching, he's going to explain. Now what he does is he uses an argument that says, look, you don't get credit, you don't get an award, you don't get a medal for doing what people would ordinarily do. Here's the way it, it reads in the text. Um, if you love those who love you, verse 32, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. 
Another way to think of that is he's saying even haters love those who love them. So he says, you and I don't, you know, there, there's, no, there's no credit, there's, no, there's nothing praiseworthy in doing what even someone who's hateful would do. Even crooks do, those, do good to those who do good to them. So if that's the case, then why do you and I think, well, you know, hey, I, I do good to people, I do good to people who do good to me. No, that's not, king, that's not kingdom righteousness. If you go back and look at the Matthew version of this, in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's saying the kingdom righteousness goes much further than the standards, the minimum requirements of this world, and the, uh, the, the measure of giving back to others as they have treated you. The golden rule overturns all of that. He says, even the greedy will lend to those who can repay them. So you don't get any benefit, you don't get any credit if you're giving to others and you don't, you know, and you, you will only do that if you expect to get repaid. This doesn't mean to be silly and stupid and uh, inappropriate in the way that we lend money or share money. Um, I like uh, Dave Ramsey's advice. He says, don't ever lend money to family, just give gifts. Because if you lend money to them, then it always turns out to be a mess. You know, there'll be resentment and everything else. If you're willing to give money, then give it. Just give it as a gift. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. But again, that's one where it takes wisdom, and you have to decide what's appropriate in those situations. But do you see what Jesus is pushing us towards here? He's pushing us towards a way that is better. So that when we do good, that we do to others as we would have them do to us, we are striving for a higher standard and that is described in this mention of being children of the most high God when we show love to those who despise and abuse us or hate us we're doing what God has done and what he's doing we are children of the most high when we do that because he shows kindness and mercy to those who hate him and those who don't deserve it we don't judge, we don't condemn, because God shows mercy to those who are not worthy of his mercy. And so who are, and including us, so who are we to say anything about anybody else? God is kind to the ungrateful, he's kind to the wicked. You know that old saying, you know, the, the, it rains on the just and the unjust. My grandmother used to say that whenever it, we'd have a big, long drought, and then the rain would come, she'd go, oh, it rains on the just and the unjust. And the way she said it, it was like somebody had been unjust among us, and somebody had not been righteous, and that's why we were going through a drought. But the point of that statement is, God doesn't just put a rain cloud over your garden because you're, you're righteous, and then your unrighteous neighbor he doesn't get any rain. The rain is just shared. And we all receive it. In other words, we all have to thank God for something, is what he's getting at. Uh, be compassionate and take the initiative to do good to others. Why? Because that's exactly what God does. Jesus didn't wait for us to ask for salvation. God didn't wait for us to ask for salvation. He knew we needed it, and he acted. As Paul says in Romans, while we were sinners... God showed his love for us. He gave his only son. 
he takes the initiative. That's the teaching there. So does this verse work well with uh, step eight where we're making a list? Yeah, it really does. In fact, you might think of this as an anti-revenge list. You know, we often carry around, whether it's written or unwritten or whatever in our heart, we carry around lists of people who've done us wrong. And one of the things that I've experienced in recovery is I finally let go of some grudges that I'd been carrying around for a long time. The kind of resentments that just, it was hurting me. I had my little list of things, things that I had done wrong, and I was going to, you know, make it even or make sure it never happened again. Why can't we carry around a list that's the opposite of that? Who have I harmed? And who has harmed me? And if I made a list of it and I said, you know what, this is, the, this is where I'm going to start acting the way that Jesus instructs me to act. And if I begin here, then maybe others will follow suit. And if they don't, I'm still doing what Jesus has called me to do. That, that, that's the kind of stuff that has, ch- that has changed the world. And we take it for granted. And it's the kind of stuff that can change your world and your life and your experience. Um, tonight, we're going to sing this song. And if you need to partake of uh, communion, that's in room... 100. So uh, let's sing together and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.